Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Today we're here with Mustafa Almansai. Mustafa is in Dr. Brian Gubranson's lab. Mustafa, can you please tell us what you do in his lab? So I studied the enteric nervous system, which is the brain of the gut. And so when I say the brain of the gut, I'm talking about the stomach and all of the things in your, basically your tummy. And so the brain of the gut takes care of all of the things that are necessary for you to live after you eat a meal. Like you need to absorb all of those beneficial nutrients and all of the vitamins and so on. And it also takes care of the job of removing all of the waste products. So when you go to the bathroom, part of what's happening is your enteric nervous system is controlling all of those functions and making sure that the waste gets removed and nutrients gets absorbed and so on. So what I do in the lab is I dissect out the brain of the gut and then I look at how the neurons talk to each other. And by looking at how they talk to each other, I can have a sense of how these neurons and the little cells around them contribute to controlling how the gut or the, the, the stomach functions, essentially. Since this is really similar to the nervous system that everybody thinks about, like with your spine, and there's neurons in your brain that communicate with each other, how do the neurons in your stomach communicate with each other? So they actually use very, basically the same essential mechanisms, which uh, means that they uh, put out little chemicals into the space between them, and the downstream neurons basically detect and pick up these signals. And depending on what type of uh, compound was released or what type of chemical was released, you have a certain effect that takes place in the downstream neuron. And so you can turn on or turn off a neuron based on the thing that's released in between them. And so that essential mode of communication that you see in the brain itself is conserved and actually the same thing that takes place in the, in the, in the gut. Thanks for explaining that. It makes sense that the neurons in our brain would communicate in a similar way that the neurons in our stomach would communicate. But in a laboratory setting, how do you study how neurons communicate? So in order to study how these neurons communicate with each other, we actually use something called genetically encoded calcium indicators. It's a fancy term that basically says that these we have mice that have um, special chemical in them that fluoresce whenever there's communication taking place. And so we can see in real time when the neurons are turned on because you see an increase in the light, and then you can see when they're turned off because there's a decrease in the light. And that's the essential basis of the experiments that we do. So we activate the, the brain of the gut. We look at who's speaking to who based on who's twinkling with the light and who's not. And figuring out which of those neurons are speaking to each other is important. But equally important to us is how support cells that surround these neurons also participate in this process. And just to clarify, the fluorescence is the mechanism that's responsible for producing the light that you're observing. That's right. So the idea is that we took, we being scientists generally, we developed, we took green fluorescence protein, which first became a thing from, I think it was jellyfish. And we basically created a more sensitive and more powerful and bright version of it. And then we made that protein genetically encodable by certain populations in the mouse's body. And so only those portions light up. And only when they have 
um, and activation, do you see an increase in the light and the fluorescence? And so that's a very powerful tool for looking at who's speaking to whom without actually having to add chemicals that was usually the mainstay of this whole process. Are there any other cells that assist with the motility of food and stool through the gut and pipeline, or is it mainly controlled through the neurons? So the neurons are the business end of the deal, but that story is not exactly the entire story. So what what else are we missing? So the glial cells. So the glial cells are support cells. That's mm-hmm. they. It's German for the word glue, which mm-hmm. basically they're so numerous in number that they encompass all the neurons. And previously we used to think that they fulfilled a supportive role and therefore they were sort of passive, taking up sort of breakdown products and putting out supportive nutrients that the neurons could live off of. But we now know that they're a lot more active when it comes to all of the things related to your gut tube. So for example, we know that if you kill off these populations of glial cells, that the neurons fail to undertake their role in contracting the gut and moving contents forward. And so that in itself is a new category of disease that we're interested in. And that if we understand better, that can open up new pathways to disease therapy. That's really good to know. So for our listeners, Mustafa studies the GI system, which is also known as the stomach tract. And he looks particularly at the neurons, but also at the supporting cells of neurons, which are glial cells. So the neurons are sending the signals throughout the body, telling the stomach what it needs to do in order to process what you've consumed. Then the glial cells are those supporting cells, and it helps along with the process of the motility, also known as movement. So Mustafa, is there a particular disease that the general public would know about that you can help us understand a little bit more about your research? One one example that comes to mind is irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS. It affects many different people from all walks of life. Women tend to be affected more so, but in general, it, it, it affects basically indiscriminately. And what we know is that there are two different flavors of IBS, basically those that where your gut is hyperactive, so things move really fast, and then those where your gut moves kind of slow and things move really slow. And both of those are problematic. The key feature that's similar or the, the common denominator between those two is that motility or movement of the gut is aberrantly affected. It's not working like it should be. There's an optimal middle ground between those two extremes that is not taking place. And so that's a good example of when motility is altered. And knowing how the neurons, and more importantly, to use this term, the circuitry of the gut's brain is altered is a key piece of the puzzle that's still not really understood. And in particular, whether or not glial cells are also contributing to that process is sort of a black box. And that's one reason why it's important to know how these support cells are affecting the function of the neurons. Are they merely bystanders? Bystanders, which is the answer to that is no now. More so on top of that, we know that they're active participants in these kinds of processes. So it remains to be seen what the exact role of these glial cells are in many different diseases like IBS. The gut-brain system is something that we don't know everything about particularly. There are a lot of things that you've mentioned so far that can contribute to our knowledge about the gut-brain system. For example, you mentioned calcium signaling, you mentioned motility, and things like that. But 
What are other things that contribute to the system that you may be interested in? And so one of the key things that I'm now interested in, and that's come out very recently for my project, is how do the upward going and the downward going electrical pathways of the gut differ? Because if you think about it, food has to go from front to back or up to down, right? Beginning to end. And so how do the populations of neurons and their surrounding glia support that? That's a key fundamental question. And so we know that the basic reflex of the gut is that the closer portions to the mouth have to contract while the later portions relax. And so the top portions are not the same as the bottom portions. So the wiring must be different. But whether the glial cells, the support cells in other words, are active participants or gatekeepers of the upwards versus downwards signaling pathways is unknown. And I'm beginning to think, and our group is now interested in this, that there certainly might be a glial dependence of how these signals go upwards versus downwards. We talked a little bit about how you study how the neurons communicate with each other, but do you also look at it in a larger scale? Like, do you look at the tissues of the stomach or are you looking at a whole stomach as its own entity? And how do you study that circuitry within there? What we're getting at here is the difference between the nitty-gritty details between the neurons talking to each other, those little signals, and then the ultimate outcome of that. Does that Do those changes in the communication patterns actually mean something functionally? And yes, we do. So one way we do this is we look at the migration of the contractile wave. So when your gut contracts and food moves downwards, it has to do so from a front-to-end sort of manner. And so we have an apparatus that lets us sort of hang up a fully intact gut segment and then add a cocktail of different drugs and in that manner look at whether the front or the back or the front or beginning or end of the GI tract is contracting more or less. And in this manner, we can correlate what we see functionally with the possible mechanisms we can suss out from our fluorescence experiments that I mentioned previously. When you're looking at the whole gut, are you still using this fluorescence technique then? Or how are you able to actually understand what's going on with the gut? So when it comes to the whole organ experiments that we do, we have fancy transducers that we basically hook onto different portions of the gut through the actual tissue itself. And then we can measure the actual force of contraction. And so when the gut contracts, there's an increase in tension, increase in tension sorry, and then you can quantitate that. And so the time it takes for a wave to propagate from beginning to end gives you a sense of how rapidly the gut might be contracting. So, for example, when I talked about IBS that's in which the gut is hyperactive, you have an increased rate of propagation of that contractile wave. So as those of you listening know, we air on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. But before episodes air on Fridays on Facebook and Twitter at SciFiles 89 FM, we post a short video about our interviewees beforehand. Mustafa had mentioned in his video that he's a DO-PhD student. Mustafa, can you please explain what it is like to be a DO-PhD student? <laughs> in one word, I would say it's jarring. But to basically break that down a little bit more, it's a very involved program that invo 
entails going between the clinic and the lab, and very casually so. The consequence is that I wear many different hats, and so you walk into a clinic and you interact with patients and you fulfill clinical duties, but in the meantime, you're thinking about science. You work with patients who have various different illnesses, explainable in some cases, but sometimes you're left wondering why. Why is this particular patient reacting in this particular way? And there's no real good answer in some cases. And as a scientist, that really makes me excited because I can then take that question that came out of my clinical interaction, I can go into a lab, and then I can generate experiments and data that try to answer or come up with some sort of explanation as to why I saw what I saw in the clinic. And so it's at first a very, again, I, I'm i still pretty early in my career, but when I first started out, it seemed very, it was somewhat of a clash between two different ways of thinking. Clinic, clinicians tend to be more so practically focused and for obvious reasons, because you need to know how to care for a patient, they have questions, you need to give them answers, and so on. Scientists can be more philosophical, and I think it's just my personality that I've always been torn between being somebody who helps, but also somebody who questions. Something I never thought of is, typically, what does a DO PhD student think about pursuing once they're completed their degree? What are you interested in? So there are many different options, and people take different routes depending on what their preferences are. Um, of course, having the credentials of a physician and the credentials of a scientist opens up lots of different doors. But personally, I'm interested in clinical practice for the time with hopefully increasing amounts of research that can, I can blend into my practice. In particular, I'm interested in gastroenterology. It is a natural offshoot of my PhD project, so it makes sense. I'm also interested in exploring other specialties at the time. For example, anesthesia and maybe radiology, just on account of how similar um, it is to do what I do and also on account of how much imaging is involved in radiology and my actual research right now. It seems like it might be something that I'd be interested in, but I'm that's to be determined. So I would imagine getting a dual degree is very time consuming. I'm getting one degree and it's already time consuming. So I was wondering if you have extra time, what do you do with it? Like, are you involved in anything on campus? So we have a community outreach clinical programs, actually, where we kind of interact with underserved communities. That's been one of my interests in med school. And hopefully it's something that we can continue later on as I progress through my career. It is tough to sort of stretch yourself between an academic setting, a clinical setting, and then beyond that. I view a lot of what I do already in the clinic and the lab really as a service because I take it very seriously and I'm very passionate about what I do. That said, I recently had an opportunity to visit Malawi where Michigan State actually has a malaria-based research initiative. And that really inspired me to sort of maybe consider pursuing an international thrust for clinical research or clinical practice just because of the amount of impact and the change that you can make in other people's lives. Well, thanks a lot for coming in today to talk to us about your research with the gastrointestinal tract as well as your interest in what you want to do with your DO PhD degree. And thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. 
Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on SciFiles.